Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron. I have the pleasure of speaking with today um, Dr. Deepra Dandekar um, on her fascinating uh, translation on her book, uh, The Subedar Sun, a narrative of Brahmin Christian conversion from 19th century Maharashtra. Welcome to the program, Deepra. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was brought to my attention by our last guest, uh, Hamsa Stainton, that his book was part of the um, American Academy of Religion, um, Religion and Translation series. And if I'm not mistaken, so is this book, is it not? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I went through the, yeah. So um, that was quite a breakthrough for me, actually, to um, go through that. And I felt really encouraged by the whole AAR series for translation. And that, I, I thought that's the right place, you know, and it worked well for me. Well, it's it's certainly great real estate. You know, it's good. It's mm. um, it, uh, it it sort of. I think the series. Uh, yeah. Both yeah. say what would happen either way, but the series I think tend to get more eyeballs on the publications because they're they're advertised throughout the AR. So that's great. So mm. congratulations on that. Thank um, you. This is a, a different kind of um, work than um, uh, we normally do monographs. We we have of course done a, a, a translation, a poetic translation. Um, uh, this is, this is a translation of a story, is it not? Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah. Would you like me to say something about it right here or would well, you? Maybe, yeah, they're different. They're different approaches. I think maybe the first approach is maybe you can tell us a little bit about the genesis of this, how this came up for you. You, you talk about this in your preface. How did this mm. project come about for you? So, um, I think there are two levels at which I um, entered this project. Um, the first was, of course, the academic interest about writing um, about a community of converts that couldn't be placed either within the Christian group, in, I mean, in the 19th century. Um, they couldn't be placed within the Christian group because that group was always considered to be Europeans. European missionaries in India, and they couldn't really be placed within the Hindu group because most of them were converts from Hinduism um, and upper castes. So they couldn't be really uh, placed there either because they were intensely ostracized from their families and communities and so on. So it's a kind of interstitial group that developed and grew quite powerful in the 19th and early 20th century. And not much is known about converts and not much is known about the kind of... um, um, the kind of intellectual discourse and ferment that uh, the community generated mostly in the vernacular in Marathi. So um, I was fascinated with this uh, since uh, for a long time. Uh, the actual catalyst is, of course, my family background, um, because I do belong to one of one such convert family on one side um, of my family line. And so I always knew that these uh, books were there. I always knew these writings were there, and um, 
I never could lay my hands on it. It was at the British Library at the Asia and Africa Collections Center that I really started coming across this literature, which was carefully um, archived and um and, and I followed an entire archival trail connected to these missions and vernacular materials and books, um, which isn't so available so so much in the limelight, or it isn't even really available in India. And uh, it wasn't available in my own family. So um, we forgot the past because it somehow became uh, considered, um, I don't know, maybe shameful is a strong word, but... It became looked at in an odd manner that, oh, you're Christian, but how how are you still Marathi? How are you still from the upper castes? Or how how does this real interstitial position really work out for you in the post-colonial setting? So um, this was always difficult, and this led this this kind of um, um, a political yeah this kind of political environment sort of led to um, an erasure, if I may say, these are very strong words, but um, it 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 led to a sort of um, pushing under the carpet. Oh, we don't look at that anymore. Yeah, that was all the past. That was all the 19th century, and it doesn't really matter to us anymore. And um, and I felt that a whole world opened to me after I started looking at the archival material and the huge plethora of books and stories and poems and biographies and autobiographies and all sorts of polemic didactic material. Um, so I, I, I think I approached it on these two different levels, which made sense. It clicked together um, when John Nemec gave me the opportunity to sort of make the translation for the AR translation series, I leapt at it. I, it was very exciting for me. Oh, it sounds like it sounds like a fascinating um, uh, cultivation of 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 a, a personal interest in, in a scholarly way that sheds sheds light on a very important uh, uh, epoch uh, in in Hindu history, if you will. Um, now let's let's maybe. Oh, I joke that. Um, I ended up writing on on the Devi Mahatmya, and I, re- I ended up focusing on the frame of uh, a king in exile. And I joke that I'm the Raj in exile in Toronto, so that must be why I'm <laughs> well, that must be why I'm I'm fascinated with this frame story. But um, let's maybe first talk about uh, what you've learned about the world behind the text before we dive into the world within the text. Does that sound fine with you? So what's so what's happening? What's what's happening with these Brahmin Christian conversions? How are they coming about? How long are they lasting? Like, what can you tell us about that world? Hmm. Um. So um, after the um, the Charter Act of eighteen thirty, missionary activities um, were no longer frowned upon in India. So most missionaries um, came at that time. Uh, after that, I mean, and uh, in Maharashtra. Uh, the particular mission uh, that I started working on um, was the Church Mission Society. Now, that was a very rural kind of a mission. It had its head office in Bombay, but then it went to areas like Nasik. Now, Nasik was important for them because it was a pilgrimage place. It was a, it was a place where um, a sort of um, sectoral kumbh mela takes place uh, every four years or five years. And they wanted to open the mission there so that they could attract more Brahmins. The the idea or the model of um, missionizing was convert the Brahmins and then the rest would follow. But uh, 
this didn't really take off in the expected way because uh, the Brahminical society of Nasik um, really ostracized the converts. And so you actually have the church mission society um, develop in a kind of a dual, uh, there was a kind of a dual um, personality to the conversions that happened over there. So you had a Brahmin um, strata, and then you had the Adivasi strata. You had a lot of Gonds and Bheels and other lower caste members of the community there uh, who joined the mission. So um, this developed into a kind of a specific thing because of the intense Brahminism of a city like Nasik. And um, this Nasik was also therefore a place where uh, my great-grandfather's father converted to Christianity at the Church Mission Society. And uh, my great-grandfather then wrote a book um, on his father's conversion. So it's a conversion narrative, and... um, it's 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 very much about the Hindu Brahmin background of the family and their imbrication in the politics of the Peshwai um, and the Panipat War and all sorts of different things that the family was involved with as part of the Peshwa administration and empire, the Maratha Empire, and how um, the fall of the Maratha Empire after 1818, after the Anglo-Maratha War, uh, when the Peshwa was finally sent into exile, what this did to his um, his administrators who had subed, who were subedars, who were kiledars, who had subas under them, or who had certain districts under them, who were administrators with little forts um, under them and small administrative duties like tax collection and um, sundry other things, keeping small armies. And they were suddenly disbanded, of course, after the the fall of the Maratha Empire. And uh, this led to a kind of provincialized, a kind of a ruralization of these people who were esteemed sort of, or considered esteemed at the courts and had high positions and had a kind of a nobility. And then suddenly they came to smaller cities and had to start again. Um, And it was from this kind of a downfall that the book, uh, traces the emergence of conversion as a way in which Brahmins looked towards the future or looked towards um, opportunities, especially educational opportunities that would help them to study English and science and um, perhaps go back, go to Bombay and Pune or start in, in some job or where they would develop an individual identity of their own, which was no longer about being Brahmin or Peshwa background, but being individuals, being educated, uh, reformist individuals who would look towards a more rational future, um, a more balanced future, and so on. So um, in a way, uh, this whole idea of social reform uh, which in Bengal was, of course, very different with the Brahmo Samaj and, of course, in Bombay also in the Pratna Samaj and so on. Uh, this was very different from the kind of rural uh, missions and the rural kind of background that many converts uh, came, uh, who looked at conversion not as reform, but who looked at conversion as a way of getting away from the past that had failed them 
or the kind of Maratha empire um, um, culture of, of, you know, taking a sort of imperial life for granted. And that had failed them. And so it was a very different kind of a background to work with the documents of the Church Mission Society, which again in Maharashtra is very different from the Scottish Mission or uh, from the American Mission. So those are different missions. And every mission has its own habitus. Every mission has its own people, the way they interact, write stuff. And um, I came across uh, my great-grandfather's book, which I always knew existed. It's called Subedar's son because his grandfather was the Subedar and the son that was his own father had converted to Christianity because he thought of wanting a new life. He thought he planned about getting a new life for himself. He eloped with his wife because she wasn't allowed to join him after he converted and he ran away with her and they ran away to the mission and they started from scratch. So it's um, really, um, yeah, it, 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 it's really, it, it, it was startlingly modern in the, rags to riches variety of experience that was um, documented in it. But what surprised me also was how intensely Brahmanical it was, how intensely, how much it was about the Hindu past. And I wondered, but my whole idea, uh, of course, began just with interest. And I wondered later about how conversion is never really about what you convert to, what you convert from and what you take with you rather than something that is so entirely new that you can't begin to wrap your mind around it. You can't begin to be a Scotsman or an Englishman. And what do you, so since you can't do that, what do you do? You just take what you have and make it into something individualistic. And there's a number. There's sorry. A number. I'm, I'm really. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, there's a number of really, really fascinating threads um, in what you're sharing about the, the context behind this, this, um, this important piece of narrative. Um, you know, I, I muse in the back of my brain that there are sort of two kinds of, of trips or journeys in life, some that are, that are a function of where you're trying to get, and then some that are a function of where you're trying to get away from. Um, and you you touch on you touch on this in in your commentary of your book. Um, let's. I think we'll have. I think we'll have more opportunity to dive into the world behind the text through the actual text. Uh, but first, could you tell us a little bit about the world in front of the text? And can you maybe unpack a, a bit about, um, uh, you know, what is the state of of uh, of, of of this uh, legacy today? You know, can you say more about the the inclination or the disinclination to, 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 to pay attention or homage to such works or such, or this period of history. Could you say more about what's happening in front mm. of the text? Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, um, that's, uh, um, yeah, uh, I, I think, um, uh, what I just briefly mentioned when we began our conversation was exactly how these um, narratives uh, grew erased um, um, in the post-colonial period. And especially um, when the whole idea of what Marathi meant became reified to a Hindu identity. And uh, there were questions like, oh, if you are a Christian, how can you be Marathi? And 
um, somehow uh, there was a disjuncture that had that had become produced somehow discursively um, between the Christian identity and uh, the Marathi identity. And so um, this this uh, is something, of course, uh, my family also grew up with partially. Um, I mean, my ancestors before me grew up with partially. And um, this is this was one of my, uh, this was an aim for me. This was an aim for me to create diversity within the entire identity of being Marathi. There isn't one kind of Marathi. And there are different subjectivities and different identities that are part of uh, the Marathi identity, which was so much part of the state formation of Maharashtra in 1960 with uh, Bala Sahib Thakre and the Shiv Sena. And so it became really reified to that Hindu identity. And the question that arose, therefore, from the front of the book was, how can that pass, therefore, it's teleological in a way because uh, it's like saying, oh, but this is the present and the past must always be just about the present. And how could the past be something so entirely different? So um, um, there was a kind of a zero moment with the formation of Maharashtra that everything from the past that was taken was only taken to support the present. So everything in the present that had a legacy in the past was what was picked up and celebrated as heritage and history. And what didn't really fit in or what didn't really, uh, or what was kind of a conundrum um, got left out. And so, um, which is why I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, erasure, uh, these are, these are strong words, but because nobody really deliberately erased anything, but it's discursive. It's about how, um, how a certain history doesn't figure in the idea of a community's linguistic, literary, intellectual heritage, because it's deemed as having betrayed it. Oh, you, you, you or they went to the colonial side, and so you're betrayers, which wasn't true. I mean, there was the native vernacular mission that was a hugely vibrant and developing group of converts who wrote and preached in Marathi and there was a very very strong presence of the Marathi church which of course declined as a religious minority after uh, the emergence of Maharashtra um, oh, those are Christians and they mostly come from either Goa which everybody knows uh, in discourse of course that oh they were forced through inquisitions to um, to convert or then these are all people who come from really backward castes or Adivasis who took money to convert. So, you know, utilitarian conversion as such. But um, uh, stories like the Subedar Sun really demonstrate that uh, the, utilitarian lay, the, the utilitarian approach was very much there with Shankar Nana as well, the first convert who wanted to escape the past, who wanted, who felt betrayed by the past having given him and his wife, nothing of importance, of really uh, going to the mission, um, interacting and working every day with so many different other castes, eating with them. This was a big thing um, at a time, to break your own caste, and eat with other people, work with other people, and look towards a future which is individualistic and no longer caste-based or empire-based in terms of the empire that they, they were talking about was the Peshwai. So... 
Um, in that sense, I think what has been the focus for me is to actually bring this all um, bring this all out a little bit. Uh, to say that the Marathi identity is a far more religiously diverse identity. Um, and this is something that's easily done, for example, for Urdu or Bangla. Sure, these are Muslim languages. They're considered Muslim languages, but Marathi is not considered one or Tamil or, you know. So it's this kind of dissonance that happens with state formations in the post-colonial period that um, selectively read into the past what becomes more um, relevant to identities today, um, political identities, social identities today. So this was important for me to um, bring out a different kind of history um, um, connected to the same Marathi identity, a different kind of religious history. Well, certainly your work shines light on a fascinating uh, strand um, during this period of history um, that's significant. Um, before we dive into the actual story, I just have maybe one, one last uh, question. It's a question about a- agency. So um, with regards to this, um, the silencing or this occlusion or this marginalization or uh, with regards to uh, the way in which uh, this story in particular and uh, the epoch behind it has fallen by the wayside. Um, where, do, where would you say the agency of that um, occlusion lies uh, in, in, in institutions and in leaders and people and the zeitgeist itself? Like how, how, what is the process whereby you think that occurred? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, as far as uh, um, I think I think it's a collective process of not really understanding. Um, Okay, so let me rephrase this. I think it isn't really, it's the the agency of the political field rather than the intellectual field. So people who had converted out of an intellectual drive to read different texts, to learn and study and um, do other things, this... This, this drive itself became occluded. So uh, it became more important to politically and socially identify with the community and an electorate and the formation of state and um, federalism and so on. I mean, the political identity took precedence uh, in the sort of post-colonial period where this, this drive itself of coming into a political self, coming into a Marathi federal self with a political party and an electorate. This itself was a force that um, served to occlude intellectual movements where um, where people did things because they thought that this would be a way to live. So in a sense, there was a certain change in culture rather than... So, of course, there were institutions as well. I mean, missionary institutions carried on. They carried on, but the culture of really thinking for yourself and reading for yourself and deciding for yourself, this kind of a 19th century drive of reform uh, came to an... I, I think this is something that was occluded. 
because what happened after that was to identify with something rather than think for oneself. So there was a resurgence of community identity and the Marathi identity became really, really strong. Marathi, as um, I was reading Oliver Godsmark, really wonderful book on how, uh, yeah, I mean, the Marathi, the demand for Maharashtra uh, could actually be compared with the demand for Pakistan. It was a federal movement. It was a movement for a different electorate, it was a different kind of uh, political uh, upheaval, the Sanyukta Maharashtra Andolan that was um, at the back of it. So this became a kind of entire, this became a kind of political um, project, which really didn't leave much scope for people who had intellectually engaged with different religious scriptures, different texts, different um, traditions and thought and decided for themselves. So I think it was the zeit, yeah, the zeitgeist, it's also a change in, it's also a shift in political culture. I think that's exactly where the occlusion took place, if, if I were to Yes, thank way. you. Thank you for indulging uh, my question. So, Tipra, what is a Subedar and what is the story of this Subedar son? Yeah, so the story is, um, so the book I, um, the book is largely, uh, though not consciously, but it's uh, largely divided into two parts. And of course, the author, whose name uh, was Dinkar Shankar Savarkar, he was my um, great grandfather, and he wrote from the perspective of being a Christian. Um, so that's the first thing that should be said. And his agenda of writing about the Hindu past from a Christian perspective is something that already reinvents um, a kind of Hinduism for the reading public of that time, especially those who bought vernacular books and who read books on change and reform and women's position in society and religion and modernity and so on. So there was a kind of a vernacular movement, a boom in texts which were written much more spontaneously, which were not premeditated texts or ritual texts or very intensely collectively composed by a group of people. These were texts which were spontaneously written by kind of, let's say, avant-garde um, writers and thinkers. And um, the book is divided, therefore, roughly into two parts. The first part is really about, he starts talking about uh, the convert's father um, and how he was in the Battle of Panipat. The book starts with Panipat. It starts with the fall of the Peshwas. It starts with the entire identity of being a part of the Peshwas retinue, being part of uh, the entire um, Maratha sort of background, the Maratha empire background. And what goes on to describe how this ancestor was a Subedar, and he was in charge of a large fort. And finally, when the British took over all the forts, um, he was asked to abdicate, and he did. And he um, then came to a smaller village near Nasik, and they lived there. And were, of course, um, he describes how the Subedar goes through a lot of depression and sadness at what he had thought would come of his life and for his children. And of course, everything was laid waste and um, he dies um, after taking sannyas and really disappointed. 
And the younger son, having really no uh, way forward with his elder brother, having assumed the whole property and all its working and whatever that there was to be done, um, the younger son kind of uh, became a bit alone. He also suffered an accident. He broke his leg. Um, the long and short of it is he had a lot of time to think about what his position in society and family was or what he could really do in terms of the fact that his family had really lost out everything and um, how would he really look for his own life. And um, Savarkar's way of talking about it is, of course, from the perspective of the soul, how would he save his soul? How would he really look towards God's path? And that would be his individual journey. So the first part of the book, which is intensely about this Brahmanical background and family, um, the second part of the book is more about uh, the sort of emotional descriptions of um, the convert uh, while engaging with the Christian scriptures for the first time, what it did to him, what he thought about it, what he thought about the world, what he thought about the nature of God, what he thought about family and respectability and education and the change that had taken place in society, especially rural society. Um, then towards the last quarter of the book, when um, the convert, uh, well, proto-convert at that time, decides to convert, then starts uh, growing into a story of ostracism starts growing into a story of how he was repulsed by his elder brother, rejected, scolded, um, um, constantly evaluated for his thoughts. What books do you read? And you're, you're going towards those Christians and those, those schools and they will convert you and they will, our family will be ruined and you are taking all the purity away and, so then the last quarter of the book is about how harassed he felt for thinking differently. And um, finally, he defects to the mission and they're very moving. Well, defection, no, he sort of takes the decision and a lot of moving discussions about how he tells his family that he's going for a bath at the Godavari at the river and uh, instead just leaves home touches everything in the home for one last time and touches his brother's feet and while they're sleeping and with a towel on his shoulder um, and his mug, he's off and he goes to the mission directly, never comes back. Um, and later um, he, his, he rescues or he kidnaps his wife, who's also a small child. Um, at that time, she was a child bride. I mean, his wife was about, yeah, about 30 years younger to him. And um, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion at this point of time about how other Hindus, his other friends at that time, look at him saying, oh, now you've become a Christian. You could go to Bombay. You could go to the Mone School there or the Wilson School there in Bombay. And there are lots of Anglo-Indian girls there. You leave this little child bride how do you care? She's just a child. You don't even know her. So forget your first marriage and you could really marry somebody who's smart and anglicized and maybe an Anglo-Indian girl or something. And you have lost your morality because you've become Christian. And there's a long sort of ruminations on um, just because we are Christian doesn't mean 
we are immoral. Just because we are Christian doesn't mean that we have lost all the social and linguistic and cultural moorings that we grew up with. And he has, well, with a friend, he goes in the night and his wife is playing outside the house and she he kidnaps her and he brings her to the mission where she's brought up in the orphanage for the next 10 years before she becomes an adult and is later remarried to him again um, in the church after she converts. So, um, so um, after reading the book, I mean, I, I had a feeling this was, of course, it's written from uh, the, the convert's perspective. It's written from the Christian's perspective. And I felt dissatisfied with the single the single view. I, I, I felt I was losing the convert in it. it. It was so much his son who was writing about his father and his ancestors and Panipat and whatnot that I felt um, that I needed to sort of juxtapose this a little bit to the convert's voice. And I discovered this huge, really tremendous archival cache at uh, the Cadbury's Research Center in Birmingham where they have a um, huge number of archival material, material daily logbooks, um, correspondence, reports, annual reports, um, letters um, from the Church Mission Society uh, from Nasik. And I was able to, it was really, it was a wonderful moment where I could really locate him. Um, he was a middle-level Marathi pastor in a local church in Malegaon, uh, which is north of Nasik. And um, um, yeah, and I found his letters and I found his um, stuff, um, all his annual reports and um, his weekly uh, reports and so on. Um, and I was able to glimpse a little bit into the life of a normal convert who had his doubts in place, whereas, whereas the book that his son wrote was almost hagiographic. It was about, oh, my dad was this great, great man who converted and was so brave and who really saved his soul, and which was far much more theological from the Christian perspective. When I saw the convert's own documents, I realized that this was a life of considerable struggle, um, especially um, a lot of retribution from the from the um, family side. I mean, they called him over for food once and they poisoned his food because he had insulted them by converting. And a lot of family pain, a lot of family struggle as well as a lot of racism from European missionaries who wouldn't let him grow, who wouldn't let him take up any senior position, who evaluated him constantly. Um, and, well, his own descriptions of um, missionizing um, among the Bheels. He spoke the vernacular of uh, the Bheels and the Gons. He was one of the few missionaries of that time who... Um, traveled a lot in the Adivasi areas and I couldn't find his own books and he's written books on Bheel in Bheel for Christian songs in the Bheel language and uh, it's it's published by the Bombay Tracts and Book Society but I couldn't find it I've, I've looked high and low for it but I haven't found it so um, there was a lot of drive towards vernacular Christianity and Marathi and Bheel and those different local languages that were spoken in the Nasik and Pune region at that time and among the Christian community, which was converting um, or new converts. So um, it, it sort of opened my eyes to an entire um, sort of history of vernacular Christianity where 
all these people were not automatically European or, or sort of lackeys or, you know, or people who were part of the European mission. But the fact that they, but they had changed the mission themselves. They had, they had themselves displaced the Europeans in the mission by, by adding to this burgeoning kind of native convert presence and the vernacular writings of these native converts that um, Europeans had, uh, uh, well, I wouldn't say no access into, but peripheral access into. So um, though there are a lot of, there's a lot of correspondence by the end of the 1800s, about so many converts and so many intellectual converts writing in the vernacular about religiosity, not just Hinduism, but also about a kind of a Christian bhakti consciousness that um, was very much about the converts' experience, uh, which missionaries couldn't share. They weren't converts. I mean, European missionaries were not converts. And, of course, they sort of beheld this intense experience of conversion, which turned uh, the lives of converts in, in front of their eyes upside down, and they couldn't share in it. They could just watch it, and they doubted it at times, and they closely scrutinized the vernacular texts for any evidence of blasphemy or, um, you know, lapsing back into Hindu religiosity. But at the same time, there was this huge consciousness suddenly of bhakti, of Krista bhakti, of, of Christian devotion. And this is something that was in itself an independent kind of religiosity that was divorced from European missionaries on the one hand, and of course, from Hindu ostracism on the other, because Hindus or many family members at that time felt that um, this, was not, this was not religion, this was breaking religion. Conversion was very, very tabooed in the 19th century. It still is. and um, But that time, especially in upper caste families who were looked upon as upholders of dharma, um, um, conversion was uh, viewed as a direct deviation from family and, and status. So um, many of these converts, like... Uh, 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 my grand, great-grandfather's father, of course, they lost status. They lost property, they lost status. They, um, the kind of background that many people who continued with the same trajectory or the legacy of the Peshwai, they didn't lose the same things. These people lost something different. I mean, most importantly, I think, I look back and I think the most important thing is the genealogy that they lost, the Vanchavali. Everybody had a vanshavali. These people were cut off from the family's vanshavali. So uh, they lost that social mooring, which was so important among upper caste families. And they made their own moorings. They made their own moorings among Christian families. And um, yeah, at that time, mostly upper caste Christian families that had converted in the same kind of intellectual um, in the throes of the same kind of intellectual movements. So um, that that's, would you say? Hmm, hmm. Who would you who would you say the audience of this book originally was? Hmm. Yeah. I, so um, I I think the audience. I I don't know whether 
I think the audience is uh, the liberal Marathi person today who would want to um, who would want to know about the heritage of the Marathi identity, which is uh, or the vernacular identity, which is not just reduced to the Hindu identity. So um, it's hard for me to, and, and of course, I mean, to the to the academic world, it's also um, which where there's very little, there's there's relatively little about uh, this whole vernacular missions and vernacular converts and vernacular literature and poetry and writing. So there are a few names that have become very famous from Maharashtra, like Pandita Ramabai and Mukti Mission. They, um, feminist scholars really took up Mukti Mission and Ramabai at a point, especially since she was connected to the Brahmo kind of background in Bengal. Uh, but apart from Mukti and Ramabai, not much is known about um, this whole mission field. What is known is the contribution of individuals like Nara and Vaman Tilak or um, Nehemaya Gori or um, Ananta Shastri Leli or uh, how should I say Baba Padmanji. Oh, that was a doyan. He was a big man. So what is known is individuals. What isn't really understood is the historical context within which all these people were interconnected, their writings were interconnected, they intermarried among each other, so amongst each other's families. So one part of my family comes from the Mukti mission. My my great-grandmother was one of the orphans from Mukti mission herself. So there is a certain kind of connectivity. So the mission field is not just a literature field like everybody reading each other's texts, but it's also a social field. And it's a part of history that I would hope academics who are interested in the Marathi identity and also in Hinduism, because all these people were converts from Hinduism and they had an opinion and a kind of a worldview about Hinduism that they presented their audiences with when talking about what they were converting from and why. And these were also personal experiences of Hinduism, very similar to um, what you may find in the mid-20th century about Dalit experiences of Hinduism, which were unhappy, which were, which were painful, which were descriptions and standpoint subject positions from which the new Buddhist identity took off. So in a sense, I'm, I think the audience would really, um, I, I would think apart from an academic audience or historians who would really like to know about this sort of a third space that had developed between missions and colonial bureaucratic offices and, you know, in quotes, the natives. Um, there was an interstitial intellectual community which intermarried, which had Marathi churches, which had printing presses, which had um, uh, journals uh, that came out quite regularly, like the Dhyanodai. Um, we know about the Prarthana Samaj kind of uh, journals like Subodh Patrika or um, others, but we know very little about, at least I haven't seen a book on the Dhyanodai as yet or any articles. 
But these were journals that came out really often, twice a month, with lots of little essays and write-ups in the vernacular from different converts. So this was a social field. And I was hoping to attract historians, um, historians who were interested in religion in the colonial period, was interested in scholars on Hinduism and Christianity, was interested in people in the Marathi identity who would want to know. I mean, I was interested in readers or interested, uh, uh, I'm interested in attracting readers to uh, these topics. So I think that was my, yeah. One of the one of the one of the themes you touch on that I think is very present in the in in the narrative is the tension or juxtaposition between religion and say ethics values um, uh, conduct. Uh, would you say, without offering too leading a question, would you say that's the primary theme of the book? Would you say there's some other? primary theme, objective, aim, purpose of the book as a literary work, what would you say, you know, how would you comment on that if you could? Hmm. I think this is a really interesting question and I'm glad you, I'm, I'm glad you phrased it this way because um, I don't want to go as far as saying, I don't want to go as far as to say um, conversion was like social reform, you know, Social reform in that time, you had Paramhans Mandali people and Prarthana Samaj members in Bombay, and the entire um, the entire um, um, emphasis of these groups was about con- conduct. It was about um, it, it, it was also about social institutions like widow remarriage and women's education and um, I think converts, what they did was they added the the morality part to it. They added the whole idea about um, goodness, what's the right thing to do, rather than what's um, the social thing to do. So I think converts... Virtue. Sorry? Something along the lines of virtue versus Mm -hmm. prescribed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, bang on. So I think... In a sense, they interacted really closely with uh, social reformists, and they went a step further. I mean, for for many Christian converts, um, the the passion and the zest with which um, you know Christianity was presented by them, for them, um, social reform would just bring in more social evils. I mean, okay, it's a bit complicated. They felt that Hinduism wasn't a religion. And it was a kind of falsehood. And reforming what was false would just regurgitate it and bring out more social evils. And, uh, for example, Baba Padmanji, whom I'm writing a book on currently, um, he says exactly this. I mean, he is somebody who uh, supports Ishwar Chandra Vidya Sagar in this whole widow remarriage act. But then, uh, which was passed in 1856, but then... He points to the nature of the first widow remarriages that took place in Bengal immediately after the act was passed. And both the child widowed brides, in, uh, both these widowed brides in these cases were children. One was nine and the other, I think, was uh, 11. So the whole idea of Christianity, of man and woman being equal, being able to love each other, find a reflection of godliness between each other, 
was anyways defeated with the kind of widow remarriages that were taking place. Because these girls, uh, the same criteria about these girls being children existed. It went further. It was just that they had been widowed because they were married to men who were 80 years old or they had never seen their husbands. So that was the only, the technical change was the only change that took place. And he supported that because um, it brought in a huge number of widows into the fray of remarriage, but it didn't do away with the original harm of child marriage. And they had to wait for the age of consent bill, and that had its own history. But the Christian perspective to social reform was that social reform, while remaining Hindu, was an eyewash because it just kept regurgitating the same old problems. Whereas Christianity, implicit within it, was the whole idea of intellectually, emotionally um, being an individual and relating to your spouse as an individual and knowing what made her happy and being equal in front of God. So it was a, it was a social reform intervention but it was about virtue. It was about going that one step further. So I think in that sense, it was a radical move to convert and to convert as part of a, a sort of an intellectual ferment that of course had the cultural capital of being Western educated and going to all these different uh, mission schools and learning different subjects. So of course it was embedded in that kind of cultural capital that you were educated. But at the same time, it was about becoming really modern and not becoming modern in the social reform way that allowed you to remain Hindu and Brahmin. And, you know, the eyewash of widow remarriage where actually the widows were still children who had no way of influencing the emotional worth of their marital life, which was what Christian reformists were talking about. So Savarkar, when he talks about his own father's conversion and the fact that his father ran away or kidnapped his child wife um, goes into in a, yeah goes into significant detail about how she remained for 12, 13 years with the missionaries in the orphanage in the girls' orphanage in Nasik, and only then was she remarried. By um, I mean, I read the church bans about their marriage when she was about sixteen. So. Um, um, so there was a great emphasis on this whole thing of um, individuality, that he was, he was concerned about her happiness. He was concerned about what she thought. So I think this was a kind of social reformism and as yet went one step further uh, to say real social reform comes by, which is something I think which Ambedkar did 100 years later, but in a different direction. That by leaving Hinduism is the only way of really becoming reformed. Well, that's debatable, but that was what um, that, that 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 was the idea behind it all. I think at that time. So when you're look when we're looking at this story uh, written by uh, Savarkar, uh, I think in 1895, um, is this primarily a window into his time into his father's time, the time of the conversion in which the story is set, or is it a window into his mental, emotional, social, familial state? 
such cool questions. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it lies somewhere in the middle. It it lies because uh, all I found of Shankar Nana's autobiographical writings, I mean, the convert's autobiographical writings, was his Christian witness, and that was in eighteen eighteen eighty yeah 1882 or 1881 and um i found that in the archives and that's all i have by him about his life the rest of the book was built up on the basis of conversations family traditions and very interestingly uh when his son um savarkar dinkar shankar savarkar wrote the book he borrowed a huge amount of the text from which i later came to understand from uh, Baba Padmanji's autobiography called Arunodaya. Now, that was another very big Christian convert in 19th century Maharashtra. And uh, <laughs> I see how much he has borrowed. And so I argue about a domain of literary uh, presence at a point of time among Christians, which became an archive. So a convert's past became a public archive for the community. Not every convert could really talk about his archive in the same way as we would, we would imagine people speaking in therapeutic ses- sessions today. Or how do you really feel? What did that make you feel? So I don't think that was really there. What was there was this entire corpus of literature where others were writing individual stories of their past. And this was like an archive that... Um, that other converts, second generation converts, writing about their parents and writing about their parents' experiences of conversion really sort of brought forward again and again in order to make a consolidated vernacular front of convert convert experiences. So the window in this case, I, I if I hadn't found uh, Shankar Nana's private materials in the um, Birmingham archive, uh, I wouldn't really know, or I wouldn't really be able to juxtapose it in the same way. So that I somehow was able to do for this book, which was really lucky for me. But it's between Shankar Nana, it's between his son Dinkar Shankar Savarkar, it's between Savarkar and the rest of the Christian community and their literature that he borrowed. To a certain extent, it's also with me because I translated it. So I... I had to think quite a lot about what does this translation really mean for me? Apart from the fact that it was really exciting material that I saw for the first time that I'd only heard of from my mother. Yeah, your great-grandfather conver- your, your great-grandfather wrote that book about his dad and we don't have it in the family anymore. We don't know where it went. Maybe it got lost. Maybe it's not important. Maybe no one wants to know about us. Maybe they all think we are dirty and bad people for having converted. Maybe we are betrayers. We were harassed, we were teased. And the entire kind of occlusion that takes place for religious minorities, it was really interesting and really exciting for me to sit in London, sit in Birmingham, really touch those materials. And um, and a large amount of that retrieval lies with me today. And I, I don't know exactly um, where I would place myself vis-a-vis the current community, vis-a-vis Dinkar Shankar Savarkar, whom I never saw, um, yeah, naturally. And his community and his dad and the rural Nasik, Brahmanical outpost of Nasik. So it's 
Um, so it's really interstitial. There's a genealogy. There's a thread that runs through it. Um, there's a family narrative that was there for me as well, because I knew of these books and what they said before really reading them and realizing that they just said half of what the family thought they said, but they said other stuff too, which had been left out in the kind of Chinese whispers, um, going from year to year, generation to generation, things that had gotten lost, left behind. So apart from the personal excitement that always accompanies unearthing new archival material and material that people don't really know much about, um, the window is really rather collective. It's about this whole social field and bringing it to Marathi identity as a part of its diversity, as a part of its um, richness, as a part of its literary history, its heritage. So, hmm, yeah. It's uh, there's so many, many, many layers uh, of insight to be gleaned uh, by looking at this work. I mean, all kinds of questions come up. Uh, uh, the extent to which is descriptive versus prescriptive. The extent to which uh, this is affording insight into um, uh, your uh, great grandfather's uh, circumstance or his concerns or the time of his father. And, and I have to say. There's something very Mahabharata about you partaking in, in this narrative about your great grandfather's <laughs> generation, which itself recounts, you know, the time of Yasa. You know, like oh. this, <laughs> there's something oh. epic about this. And, it um, is, isn't it? I, I mean, yes. uh, the first time I I saw those letters, um, um, Raja had goose pimples. It was a very very overwhelming experience for me to touch those words. I mean, it was very embodied. And I I can't really, you know, I can't really, um, on the one hand, the entire heroism of it, oh, he was this great guy who broke all the rules and converted. And on the other hand, oh, he was this impure bigot who broke society and broke family and, and was a shame. You know, these are the binaries. These are the binaries that I couldn't relate to. What I could really think about, which I I still struggle with, that what really made him take that step. And looking back as part of this Mahabharata or looking back at it from this genealogical kind of perspective, I must accept we can't understand everything about the past. I mean, however much, or I can't, maybe others do, and that would be great to know what others bring up in terms of other vernacular narratives and translations and research. But I don't think today that I can really touch it. I can see it. I can see those words. I can touch those words. But what really made him go that extra mile? I don't know. So in a way, it's this mysterious thing about religious transformation. It's this mysterious kind of event and process which is written and rewritten and copied between other books. And and yet it remains occluded in a way because one doesn't really know what lies behind the words. It's said that way because it was printed. It was meant to be read that way. It was meant to inform readers of 
modern Bombay about religious change and transformation and true nature of reform. And, and yet there's something deeply personal about conversion that's about biography. And so I think the methodology for understanding conversion narratives for me, as far as I would say, would be translation, would be understanding biographical writings. As far as one could translate these in a larger cultural sense to come as close as possible to where every convert really made that change or took that leap forward or or so you know so it's it's in a way it's quite mysterious and it's it's um since i've been a kid i've been tickled by it a little bit you know there's this huge fireside story about uh you know he really felt that his life changed at that moment and me thinking yeah i can't even change my mind about who my best friend is currently how did he change his mind about religion <laughs> you know, that feeling of mystery, that feeling of change that is just documented, um, but can't be felt because it's too big. Well, these uh, most fascinating um, projects, most fascinating narratives, uh, um, sort of uh, complexes in history or in personality, the most fascinating things we study are the least tidy, the least... Uh, at least avail themselves to ready explication, but but there therein lies their allure, right? It's complex and it's yeah. multivalent, and there's yeah. so much going on there that it <laughs> needs to be studied. Yeah, it's a palimpsest. There are layers and layers, and every time you unearth something, you feel, oh wait, there's something written underneath this. Yeah, and, many, and many such things. Is, yeah, such I think is the um, penchant of narrative to to purposely preserve tensions and paradoxes. It refuses to design, right? It refuses to, 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 to give you a, a simple linear answer. And I think that is why narrative is a powerful form. And that's why um, uh, your great grandfather, to do what he wanted to do, he had to choose narrative. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, and, and sort of, yeah, we're, 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 we've taken enough of your time for today. It's been, it's been about an hour, an hour and change. But uh, the last thing that comes to mind, I'll just say before we close is, you know, this religion, quote unquote, religion in translation series. Some of, some of the, uh, some or much of the, uh, the, the books in this series, they're offering literal translations. Um, but it's this bigger project, right? It's this bigger project of understanding conversion, understanding biography, hagiography, um, religious narratives, ethics, values. It's translating um, phenomenon of religion for uh, people who don't study it. So I I think it's really, um, it's an apt home for this kind of project. Yeah, I felt so too. I mean, I I initially wrote to Anne Monius about it and she passed my proposal on to John Nemec. And I felt intensely encouraged by him and the series, and um, it was it was really good. It was a really um, it was apt, as you say. It's really found its home in a sense. A, a translation like this, yeah. Great. Um, so, uh, for those of you listening, uh, we have been speaking with uh, Deepa Tandekar on her. Um, 2019 OUP publication, 
uh, Behedar's son. Uh, for, uh, thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I've had fun. Thank you. Thank you.